Welcome to Paradis, a broadcast dedicated to helping Christians develop a biblical worldview, preparing us to think scripturally and soundly about our world today. I'm your host, Brian Nixon. Joining me by phone on today's broadcast is Dr. Joseph Holden, author, pastor, and president of Veritas International University, and Luke Betzner, pastor, author, and director of institutional effectiveness at Veritas International University. Welcome again, gentlemen. Good to be with you, Brian and Luke. Glad to be here, Brian. Thanks for having us on. Well, throughout this semester, our focus will be on apologetics, using Dr. Holden's book, Living Loud, as our springboard. During this semester broadcast, we'll touch on several important topics, such as truth, God's existence, miracles, Jesus' divinity, and biblical reliability, among many other engaging subjects. On our first episode of Paradis, we defined what apologetics is, looking at various schools of thought. If you missed the broadcast, I recommend you check it out. This week, we're jumping into our first core topic, truth, asking what is truth? So Joe, to get us started, let's begin with you. What is truth and why is it essential for Christians and for that matter, non-Christians to understand? Well, truth is very important because our lives depend on it. When we go to the doctor, we want him to tell us the truth. When we go before a judge, we want the truth to be known. Um, When we get change at a supermarket, we want to make sure that they're accurately understanding what kind of change to give you back and to communicate on whatever bill is owed the cashier. Truth for the Christian is words spoken affirmed, uh, put forward, either written uh, or otherwise, that correspond to reality as it exists. In other words, truth is telling it like it is. And it's important for us Christians because we don't want to believe in something that isn't anchored to reality. You see, truth is anchored to how the world really is. It's telling of the facts. And for Christians especially, we don't want to buy into anything that leads us astray or is not anchored in reality, but that's something that can be, um, unfortunately, many people use, um, you know, pie in the sky as their method of truth or test for truth, and that's something that Christianity just doesn't offer. It's a historical Christian faith that's rooted and grounded in reality. Mm, Great answer. I love in your book, Joe, that you say the first step in our apologetic goal is the question and nature of truth. Truth should be addressed first because the remainder of the questions we will ask about Christianity requires true answers. So this question of truth, does it exist, is essential, not only for the claims of the Bible, but for our defense of the Christian faith. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is so very important, because you can't get off the ground as a Christian arguing for Christ or the resurrection unless truth exists. And if it exists, then we can use it in affirming or denying propositions against or for Christianity. So it's so incumbent upon the the Christian, even the non-Christian, to know the nature of truth and the fact that we can know it and have access to it is so very important to the whole fabric of why we believe in Christ as our Savior. Because if we couldn't test it with any other point of reality, then it's only your opinion. 
And that's the only thing we have to fall back on is opinions. Yeah, that's so good. And I also like in your book, you kind of give a little equation here. You say statements match facts and evidence equals the truth. Statements that do not match facts and evidence equals falsehood or a lie. So really truth is foundational to our claims and really what we would call pre-evangelism, setting the tone for our discussion with with other other people. So on that note, let's turn to you, Luke. Can you give our listeners some examples of truth being used in the Bible? Obviously, the Bible um, is, is a truth container. As Christians, we believe that. But can you give us some specific text or references where truth is used in the Bible? Oh, absolutely. So, one of the first things that we would look at, of course, is, well, is the word truth used in the Bible? And it actually is, over 200 times in Scripture. And so, obviously, Scripture itself being truth is something we would work with from a presuppositional standpoint. But the Scriptures deal with truth in what seem to be about five general categories. In Deuteronomy 32.4, the Bible declares that God the Father is truth. He is called the God of truth which would take it out of the realm of individuals and saying God doesn't do things because they're true, they're true because God does them, and removes it from individual subjectivity. God's words and actions correspond to his nature, and he does nothing contrary to his nature. The second part would be one that many of our listeners are very familiar with, which is John 14:6. I am the way, the truth, and the life that Jesus spoke. And so he is truth incarnate. And it says he came to reveal to us the Father. So there's no differentiation between the nature of Christ and the nature of the Father. But Jesus, while he was here in his earthly state, showed us the truth. And it says he is the Word, or Lagos, and he is God's standard of both logic and truth. And then the Spirit of truth. He'll guide you into all truth. John 16, 12 through 14, where Christ is saying, I will pray the Father, and he will send you the Spirit of truth. He says, at this point, the Spirit is within each Christian and leading us into a place of truth, relating us, helping us to relate to God in a true manner. Then, Psalm 119, 160, where it says, your word is truth. And this is around the area where it says, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed to thy word. Thy word is truth. And so truth is communicated through Scripture, through the Scripture, through the Bible, and the Bible, of course, reveals the truth of God. And then lastly, we find it originating with God. In the beginning, God created. Genesis 1.1. Because creation is an act of God, of course it echoes his character. It has its, his image upon it, and it's his truth. Not in the sense that it's subjectively able to be reassigned, but God owns truth. He defined what it was, and it's our opportunity to step into all of the things that he would show us through it. So physical truth, which is we would consider that objective, can be found in God's creation. Mm, so good, so good. Nice summary, Luke. And I like to summarize those two aspects as we find truth in God's world, you know, the created um, facets of, of in which he imparted, created, and then in his word, you know, through scripture. And these are two sides of the same coin. He's the author of both books, if you will, creation and 
his word. And so truth uh, it, it does correspond to reality in all of those, na- um, those, those facets that you just said. And I also like to point out before we, we move on here is that we as, as people, human beings, Christians or otherwise, we don't invent truth. We discover truth. Truth is from God and flows from God. And so we're not truth inventors. We're truth discoverers from that which God has given us. Joe, do you have anything you'd want to chime in on before we move on to the next question? Well, it's, it's great to know for the Christian that when we read the Scriptures, it is anchored and resides in reality. Many of the different world religions don't have that particular characteristic as part of their religious perspective. But we can anchor Christ's resurrection. We can anchor the writing of the scriptures. We can anchor the kings and the rulers and the coinage that was used during the time of Jesus. We can anchor the cities that are real places and real towns and real valleys and geography. Our faith is a historic Christian faith that is rooted and grounded in truth. And this is something that Christianity can offer the world, whereas many of the other persuasions in terms of religious perspectives, they just don't have what it takes to pass that truth test. So we are very fortunate. Mm, uh, That is great, Joe. Thank you. I'm going to keep it on you for a moment, Joe, here. So we've we've defined truth. We've, We've looked at what the Bible has to say about truth. Let's now talk about what truth is not. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's a lot of opinions of what truth is in the world, but there are things that truth is not. So such as truth is not necessarily what works or what I feel about a certain subject or my opinions on a subject. So Joe, tell us what truth is not. Well, oftentimes in our culture today, we look to see what is a good test for truth. And some people put forward all kinds of different subjective criteria for understanding what they think to be true. We know truth is not based on your feelings because feelings change and emotions go up and down, but truth is consistent. It's the same all the time. That's why Christians believe that the truth is absolute. And what we mean by absolute is that it means that it's, if it's true, it's true for all times and all people and all places. It's always true for everybody universally. For example, if I say it has blue skies today in Albuquerque, and that is true, then it's true for everybody, even in China, that there is blue skies today in Albuquerque. So it's important that we root it in reality, as we said, and also dismiss these ideas that talk about pragmatism, like truth is what works. But the problem there is uh, some things work and some things don't work. It doesn't get you any closer to the truth. Um, Truth will work as God intends it to work, uh, but truth can't be defined by works. Sometimes works fail. Um, Truth can't be defined by uh, your own autonomy or relativism, because um, to say that truth is relative uh, is an absolute truth claim, that truth is relative. So it's self-defeating to make those kind of pronouncements. So truth is what we call an undeniable first principle. That means that if you try to deny it, you actually 
affirm it. If you try to say there is no truth, then you just affirm the truth that there is no truth. And so we call that self-defeating. So good. So good. So, Luke, on this one, um, Joe gave us some elements of what truth is not, such as what works, a pragmatist, you know, ideology, or this idea of what we would say relativism, that my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth. What are some of the barriers that you have found to people not accepting the truth? You know, again, truth is that which corresponds to reality, telling it like it is. What are, what are some of the barriers you have discovered? I know you taught a class last semester where you went out on the street and street witnessed. What, what are some of the things that people are antagonistic towards the truth? That's a great question, Brian. And so much of what we've covered has really just encapsulated the very things that people are pushing back against. I, I just use three things Primarily, there's more areas in this, but I call it the great mystery, the great recalcitrance, and the great ambivalence, right? So the first thing is no one can ever know what is true. And if you do, then you are either arrogant, you're intellectually dishonest, or you're just ignorant. You don't know enough to know that you can't know enough. And my response to that is usually just because we don't know everything doesn't mean we can't know anything. There's no reason to believe that if someone came to the point where they're willing to make an assertion like you can't know everything, it's almost half of a syllogism. It's not even a complete thought. It uses its premise in its conclusion um, or its conclusion in its premise, how we would normally say that. So saying that you can't know enough means it's, it's used as a pejorative attack against the truth, anything you try to assert to them. They don't even have to spend brain power on it. They just brush it off. And that's very closely related to the the great ambivalence. But the great recalcitrance is anything that you would tell somebody. If you even associate it with it being true and it doesn't originate from inside of them, then they don't want anything to do with it. If it's not something they've already stood in, this is the kind of folks who would say, well, we make our own truth. Like, I know that everybody who's ever been before always said this was wrong, but those people have also been wrong. So we're going to just go do our own thing. And it's almost like it's a recalcitrance, a rebellion against truth. So many of these people, when you tell them what's true, even if they've never thought about what you've told them before, their mind automatically goes to the antithesis of what you've told them, and they start trying to argue that point, no matter how irrational or ridiculous that it is. And then the last one is the great ambivalence, which I find more and more prevalent these days than either of the other two, although the first one's related to this, and that is everybody's right, or that's your truth, this is my truth. And they subdivide truth into subjective silos, where it's okay, man, you do what you, do you, I'll do me, we're all good, let's all get along, I don't want to talk about this because, you know, you're getting into my, quote, truth bubble, And that's not true for me. It's true for you. Interestingly enough, Scientology, of all places, actually makes this a core tenet of their their teaching. It says, just remember, this isn't. If this not is not true for you, then it's not going to work for you. So it's only true if it's true for you, is what they say at the end of their little blurb for promoting their ministry. 
So there's active systems that are working with this relativistic subjective view, and those those seem to be the ones that are on the they're on the wax right now, where everyone's right because nobody wants to have a conversation. And I just call that you know the great ambivalence. Those are the three big ones that mm. I would point out, Brian. Yeah, those are great three summary points. Thanks for that, Luke. And, and Joe, let me let me uh, go back to you here. You know, we live in a post-truth world. We live in a a very relativistic world. But, you know, there are those people throughout history that have claimed uh, similar things, Uh, you know, agnosticism, skepticism, and so on and so forth. How would you answer, let's say, an agnostic, someone who says, you know, we don't know if there's a God, we don't know if there's truth, therefore we've got to invent our own. How, How would you personally deal with people who are not truth abiders or don't believe in the concept of truth? Boy, that's a great question, Brian. You know, there are two forms of agnosticism. There's a hard form that tells us you cannot know truth, and then there's a soft form which says, I simply don't know what the truth is. The soft form are delightful to interact with and to discuss the truth claims of Christianity. They're open, they're flexible, they're willing to have an honest discussion. But it's the hard form that poses the threat to Christianity that says that one cannot understand or receive or discover truth. That emanates from uh, Plotinus in the ancient world around the 3rd century B.C., and also from Immanuel Kant uh, in the early 19th and late 18th century A.D. Uh, Kant basically said that you can't know ultimate truth, Um, because our mind is uh, inextricably cut off from accessing uh, the truth uh, in a metaphysical way. So these people today in our modern culture have kind of repackaged Kant to say nobody knows the truth and you can't uh, have the truth. But I would just point out that, first of all, it's self-defeating to say that truth cannot be known because the agnostic has given you an absolute truth that truth cannot be known. It's a self-defeating statement. In other words, you turn their statement on itself to see if it can stand against its own criteria and content. And in the agnostic case, it can't. But when you come to skepticism that emanates from David Hume, uh, he died in 1776, he said to suspend judgment about reality, be skeptical about all things. But the problem with that is that's also self-defeating, because the more you become skeptical, the more certain you are. And if you turn David Hume's claim on itself in a radical skepticism to say, be skeptical about all things, suspend judgment, about reality, what happens is, is you need to be skeptical about your own skepticism. Mm. And so it is self-defeating again. Mm. So really, there's nothing to be afraid of for the Christian. Um, A lot of these uh, great thinkers of the past were indeed smart, but they often make very simple mistakes. Just turn the philosophy on itself and see if it stands the weight of its own criteria. Mm. So, so good. Thanks for that, Joe. So, Luke, let me pose this question to you, because we hear it a lot in our world today. You know, truth, for me, is my truth because it feels right. You know, I get a burning, you know, sensation in my bosom, and and I, I just know it's the truth. So my question to you, Luke, is why are feelings 
not always a great indicator of the truthfulness of something. Uh, it's such a common statement to hear. And, you know, and there was a big statement that you're probably referring to. If it feels good, do it, right? This is where Nike's slogan comes from, do it. And there's this whole idea that if I'm okay with it, I don't need any further accountability. And it makes this assumption that the person who ironically often might say that you can't know anything or that there's no such thing as absolute truth nonetheless becomes the only accountability that exists for their own actions. So they set themselves up to be the very thing that they deny. So it's self-contradictory to start with in that their own judgment is, of course, immune from being able to, as Joe was pointing out, stand against its own criteria in their mind. They create these compartments of reason that are cut off from consequence. But then there's also the problem that humans do not retain their feelings about things in a static manner. Feeling is inherently unstable, and it constantly vacillates. And therefore, if one is trying to have any level of consistency in life and does not account for the fact that their feelings are not worthy of, of being able to be stood upon, they would just simply need to be questioned and say, well, how did you feel about this two years ago? Okay, well, what about now? And if they can simply find that there's a differentiation between where their feelings are now, where they were two years ago, or maybe in some cases ten minutes ago, that in itself should discourage them from being able to think that this is the right way to go because they'll constantly end up in contradiction to themselves and without any accountability for being so. Yeah, so, so our feelings are not a good indicator of the truthfulness of, of a situation or manner. So good. Thanks for that, Luke. So we're going to switch now and use the remainder of our, of our time together um, looking at four different schools of thought regarding truth. Um, and these are, all four are found in our world today. You will find usually individuals around the world will adhere to one of these schools or a variation of these schools. And of course, Joe, you, Luke, and I all prescribe to a particular one that, that we'll, we'll talk about in a minute. But I thought it would be useful to, to address them so, so our listeners could get kind of a bird's eye view of these different theories of truth. And let me use this as a time to also recommend a book that that I know you've recommended, Joe, as well. It's called Feet Firmly Planted in Midair. It's by Francis Beckwith and Greg Kokel. And and they do a great job in summarizing these four areas, I, I believe. And correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, but they have the correspondence theory, which we'll deal with. And then they call it cultural relativism, societal relativism, and then I relativism, you know, a me relativism. But the, the four major theories... I'd like to address is the correspondence theory, the pragmatic theory or truth that works, the coherence theory, which is a type of cultural relativism, like the culture over a period of time sets truth. And then the consensus theory, which is essentially that your society 
constructs truth via laws and societal norms. So let's address these and let's let's start with the first one. Joe, can you tell us what the correspondence theory of truth is and why it's uh, it's a strong theory? Sure. Um, the biblical view is the correspondence view of truth, which simply says this, that truth is that which corresponds to reality as it exists. In other words, our written or spoken statements, our affirmations, our propositions that contain truth value, they have to apply to the real world and be rooted and anchored to the world. In other words, reality serves as a check and balance on everybody's statement. And this is particularly important because now we can test the truthity or the falsity of, of any particular affirmation or statement. And if we can't um, confirm that statement, we can leave a little asterisk on it and, and, and so forth by any given person in a given conversation. Um, but there are many statements, such as in John chapter 3, verse 12, Jesus said, if you cannot trust me or take to the bank, so to speak, I'm paraphrasing Jesus here, the things about this earth, how will you ever believe me about the things of heaven? In other words, if all the things he talks about on this earth, the things that we can check out or test in a laboratory, and they check out to be true, then we can give him the benefit of the doubt to the things we can't check out in a laboratory, such as the things of the spirit, things of the afterlife, of heaven, and of hell, and all these different uh, theological constructs that we have no way of scientifically uh, testing. So correspondence view is very important. In fact, we see it in the book of Genesis, where Joseph meets his brothers who came during a famine to get food to support their family. They meet up with Joseph after so many years, and Joseph said, go back and bring your youngest brother, Benjamin, that your words may be tested to see if they are true. Also in Exodus chapter 20, you have one of the commandments that says, do not bear false witness. So that all implies that truth corresponds to reality as it exists, and that we shouldn't be sharing necessarily our feelings or what our emotions are telling us, because as Martin Luther said, feelings come, feelings go, but my warrant is the Word of God. Why? Because feelings change, the Word of God doesn't change. And it's really important to underscore this, Joe, that the correspondence theory is not only the biblical understanding of truth, but it's been the historical traditional way of understanding truth really throughout the centuries. I mean, it goes back to Aristotle and others. So what we're confronted with in our modern world is really a rebellion against what has been taught for, you know, thousands of years. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. In fact, in Romans chapter one, Paul says that the world's problem is not perceiving or understanding the truth about God. It's the problem of receiving the truth about God, because they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So in many respects, it may not even be an intellectual problem among many people who reject the truth. It may be a moral and spiritual problem, which we know it to be the case. So this all works together in people's discovery of truth. Are they open to it? Or do they have a hard heart against it? And Paul makes that very clear in Romans 1, 18 through 22. 
So good. Thanks for that. So that the first theory of truth, which all three of us on this broadcast adhere to and believe is the correspondence theory. We also believe that the Bible teaches this. Let's move now to the second theory of truth, which is the pragmatic, which basically holds to truth is what works. So Luke, unpack that a little bit um, and tell us what's wrong with just going forward with, well, if it works, it must be true. Oh, man, there, there are so many dominoes that fall from this. This, of course, originated in modern times with the likes of Charles Sanders Pierce, William James, Don, John Dewey, who were all movers and shakers in the late 19th, early 20th century, up to really mid-20th century intellectual community, and they really started pouring this in. But the idea of pragmatism, of course, is the end justifies the means. That's why most folks might be able to to step into that. But by making truth a product of pragmatism, it does two things, I think. And this is where these gentlemen that created this idea or really pushed it forward were off. And that is, it makes truth simply a matter of what can be known. And it makes it subject to a qualitative view that is subjective to the viewer. So in other words, there's something, maybe I discover something that's true, but then the problem is, as one of them states, is that there's a self-corrective aspect of truth, which then makes you go back and say, well, am I begging the question? So I've discovered something that's true as the product of a process. But then I'm saying that, oh, that might not, not actually be true. That's what worked for now. We could look to, say, for instance, evolutionary biology and the view of the cell in the 19th century or the idea of spontaneous generation. These were theories that, quote, worked, or the caloric theory. These were theories that worked and seemed to be true until someone else came along with a better methodology and a better way to isolate for certain results, and then they corrected the previous, quote, truth, unquote, and so they're, they're trying to make truth the product of scientific experimentation and theory, which is the same as making truth simply the product of deduction. And in Aristotle's own breakdown, you can have something that's valid but untrue. So when you have something, quote, that works, I used a good process to get here, it doesn't mean that what you're arriving at is truth in the sense of the absolute. And so by doing this, I feel like they broke they broke the idea of truth away from its absolute character and made it a product almost of situational ethics. And then two, probably the worst part of this, is that by making it non-absolute, they also divorced truth from its moral character. Mm -hmm. Because as pragmatism affected the areas of knowledge and conclusivity that is inevitably involved with deduction and induction, it also then makes truth only available in the ways that men have applied tests to societal fabric to view it. So in other words, if I choose to look at something morally and I have a process to get there, what I conclude might be moral because I followed a process, then allows me to conclude that something's okay, this is the whole end justifies the means, and just simply be able to create a circumstance in which what I have done is justifiable by the circumstances that I controlled for to make it happen. And therefore, 
it destroys both absolute truth and it destroys absolute morality, which is inevitably, in the eternal view, tied to truth and cannot truly be divorced from it. No, oh, so so good, Luke. That those are great points and great thoughts, particularly the the separation of the moral code. So that that's that's a marvelous. Thank you for that. So so far we have the correspondence theory and the pragmatic theory. Let's let's briefly go to the next one, the coherence theory, which really is it, it says that truth is constructed by social processes over a period of time, and usually it's a power struggle between people within the community. In, in the end, it's, it's saying that culture sets truth. So, Joe, what is wrong with culture setting truth? Well, the main problem is that there are different cultures, and these different cultures arrive at different conclusions. So the coherence theory basically is a constructivist view where the culture constructs their own truth, and that truth that they construct has many tenets to it. And those tenets or statements must cohere with themselves. And if those statements cohere with themselves, then you can say that the system or what they're speaking of in any given context is true because it coheres. There's no contradictory statements within the culturally constructed system. For example, if I have a system of Santa Claus, that all my statements about Santa Claus must be coherent and non-contradictory with other statements within that constructed system. Now, the only problem with that is that you don't have anything to anchor those statements within the coherence view of truth to something that's outside the system, any external realities, in other words. Um, When we don't have anything to anchor one statement to something in the real world uh, as it is, then it's like a spider spinning its web in midair. Uh, There's nothing concrete to hang it on. There's no rafter, there's no branch, there's no rock, there's no uh, grass to anchor the actual web itself. That's what this cultural coherence theory does. It spins systems, but the system itself, though they say it's true because the statements in the system cohere with each other, those statements don't cohere or correspond to anything outside the system. So you can create any kind of system you want. Uh, It could be Santa Claus, it could be uh, pink unicorns flying over the North Pole, and as long as the system stays coherent within itself, then it's okay and people can endorse it. Uh, But nothing can be farther from the truth. A coherence theory is good in the sense that we all want to be coherent in our truth and in our statements, even the correspondence view of truth needs to be coherent and non-contradictory. But when you leave it only to coherence, it lacks a referent point outside the system, which which is its fatal flaw. Mm, So good, so good. So thus far we have correspondence theory, pragmatic theory, coherence theory, and our final theory is consensus theory. And, And in general, I know you'll expound upon a little bit more, Luke, but in general, it, it holds that truth is whatever is agreed upon within a society. And this specified group may use law or, or socially constructed ideas about what is truth. So what is the problem with consensus theory of truth, Luke? 
Well, I think the very first thing that becomes obvious is that it embodies a logical fallacy called argumentum ad populum, that something is right simply because a large portion of people agree with it. And I think most people would recognize this as a question from their parents saying, if your friends told you to jump off a bridge, would you do it? It's the same kind of thing in that simply because a group of people agree that something is true ultimately has no ability to affect whether it's true or not. Now, a lot of places have done this. And in fact, a prominent example, and one of the things that you can find in Unshakable Foundations by Norman Geisler, but the German society during the times leading up to and during and after the Holocaust, their argumentation at the Nuremberg trials was how anyone who was outside of their society had the right to hold them accountable for what they collectively decided was true and moral and just. Mm -hmm. This was literally the argument offered by the people defending them in those trials, which were um, ultimately, of course, they were decided against. But the decision against the actions of the Germans in consensually determining what was right for their society, but yet against a higher standard, against the standard of conscience, against the standard of treating people humanely, against the standard of truth and um, anything that one would consider normal behavior toward their fellow human being. They showed themselves to be in contradiction to, to this despite what they themselves had decided. And I think they stand as a very clear, um, disastrous example of the end game from consensus mm -hmm. is truth. And you could probably find dozens of examples in everyday life that enforce bad behavior under the fact, well, this is, well, for kids, there was a great book called This is What Would Happen If Everybody Did. If you can take something and universalize it, it takes it out of that consensual construct and, again, allows it to be compared with absolute truth and say, right. how does this really stack up? Right. Yeah, and I think of a modern example here in the United States is the abortion, Roe versus Wade. For many years, society has gradually come to agree upon that abortion is okay. Therefore, it's, it's true for that person or true for a society. But it's contrary to ultimate truth, to ultimate life and, and, and such. So I think abortion is maybe a, a modern context where there's a similarity to what we found in Germany during World War II. So the four different theories, correspondence, pragmatic, coherence, and consensus, obviously the three of us agree with the correspondence theory. But before we wrap up today's broadcast, let me ask you, Joe, you know, we get this a lot in our society that those who believe in truth, those who adhere to a strong position or a strong correspondence understanding of, of reality, that we're narrow-minded, that we're intolerant, that we're bigots and you, you, you fill in the gap. What would you say to those people who are calling people who adhere to the correspondence theory of truth narrow-minded or intolerant? How would you respond? Well, I think we need to remind them that truth is narrow by definition, and it's also intolerant by definition. Because if A is true, logic tells us that all non-A must be false. Whenever we make a positive affirmation with truth value, its opposite is 
automatically rejected. I mean, we think about going to school and our math teachers that would never give us credit for any other answer for 2 plus 2 equals 4. We couldn't say 5 or 7 or 100 or 150. They must be the most narrow people on the face of the planet. But they understood that there is an answer to those particular questions. And remember, intolerance also implies there's something that you disagree with. And if there's something you disagree with, it means you have opposite truth value statements, that you're on a different worldview. Both of them cannot be true according to the laws of logic. Um, and so we just need to remind them, I think, Brian, that that truth is narrow by definition. It's that which corresponds to reality, and its opposite is always false. Even the atheist that says that there is no God is being exclusive and narrow-minded because he's rejecting all statements that say that there is a God. So there's no such thing as truly an open-minded atheist or agnostic. Everybody holds an exclusive position, no matter what side of the coin they fall on in the argument. Mm, that's so so good. I remind our listeners, you could get more information on this topic of truth from Dr. Holden's book, Living Loud, Defending Your Faith. Um, gentlemen, are there other books that you would recommend? I know, uh, Luke, you mentioned Norm's book, Unshakable Foundations. I mentioned Feet Firmly Planted in Midair. Joe, are, are there any books that you could think of that, that you would recommend to our listeners that they could dig a little bit deeper? Sure. Um, there's a very good book uh, called Come Let Us Reason Together, and it's uh, by uh, Norman Geisler, and it's a, a textbook on logic. And it's an easy, readable, simple to understand, gives you great examples. It takes you through how to think through uh, these rules of thought so you can arrive at truth in a proper way. Um, what a wonderful book that would be for everybody to pick up. Mm. And Luke, any, any further thoughts on recommended reading on the topic of truth? Well, in companion with that, I'm going to take a page out of Joe's book last week, and that is the, the ancient authors. If you can get an up-to-date version of Aristotle's Oregonon, where he lays out a lot of these truth claims, how they are built, the process of syllogism, as you're going through Dr. Geisler's book, He's going to be pulling from concepts, granted through a very significant filter, but having access to that about what is a syllogism, how many, what's a premise, you know, what's a conclusion, and then those things that I mentioned earlier about things that are valid and untrue, or invalid and true. It would be an introduction to those principles. Mm, so good, so good. Well, Joe, Luke. I can say that this has been an enriching and engaging discussion. Thank you both for weighing in on the topic of truth. Could be with you both. My privilege. And we invite our listeners to join us next time as we address the question, does God exist? So until next time, continue to proclaim the gospel, equip the saints, and defend the faith.